So this morning, we'll move to the discussion of the third noble truth. And uh, as I had the, uh, the honor to, to uh, talk about the first noble truth, the noble truth of suffering, a couple of days ago, um, I'm happy to now be talking about the cessation of suffering, the cessation of dukkha. So the third and fourth noble truth are really the good news part of the, uh, the noble truths. The first, as we've all experienced and discovered and, and, and worked with uh, over the past few days, especially a couple of days ago, um, when you start to notice dukkha, when you, when you really start to open up to it and, and notice it, you see it everywhere. You see it in your sense doors, you see it in your mind, you see it everywhere. And it's like, oh, there's so much dukkha. Oh. So, and it can be overwhelming. And I remember a few of you saying that, okay, we can't wait to get to the third noble truth. Okay, enough of this dukkha thing. <laughs> when is the third noble truth going to arrive? So here it is, it's arrived. Um, so if, if the Buddha left it at the first and second noble truth, I think Buddhism would be pretty pessimistic. Like, okay, it's dukkha, and the cause of it is... Craving and too bad, tough luck, bye. But it doesn't end there. And aren't we glad it doesn't end there? <laughs> it's just such a relief that there's a third noble truth. That, no, it, it, can, it can cease, it can stop. There can be freedom from, from the dukkha, from, the, uh, from suffering. And, um, and then the fourth noble truth also telling us how to go about doing that. What the path is to that cessation. So... Uh, so we can celebrate the good news. Um, hallelujah. <laughs> Seems like a mixed message. but um, So the third noble truth, cessation has to be realized, um, is the extin- extinction of its origin, which is craving, uh, must be realized. And to keep in mind that uh, if it were not possible, the Buddha wouldn't have taught it. And the Buddha actually says that if it were not possible, I would not have taught it. So it is possible. It is possible. It is possible. And I really take heart in that for, for my own practice. Um, it's not that liberation is something just for people who become monks and shave their heads and practice all the time. And it's it's... Also, as Ajahn Sumedho says, I loved in his writing how, how he said it. Let's see if I, if I try to open it. Um, he says, we don't have to wait until we die to find out it's all true. This teaching is for living human beings like ourselves. Each one of us has to realize it. I may tell you about it and encourage you to do it, but I can't make you realize it. So this is the truth. The Buddha said emphatically, this is the a truth to be realized here and now. So it's not something to, to if, if you believe in the multiple life models for later, etc. It's, it's in this very life. So, so that's something I really want to give some weight to, that freedom, more freedom is possible in this very life for every single one of us. It is a possibility to really sit with that, to sit with that and see what our relationship to that is. 
is there some disbelief? Like, no, actually, I don't think it's possible. I can't. I don't think I can have more freedom, be free. Or is there a sense of, yeah, yeah, I have seen it in my practice that I've become more free, and I believe that it is possible to have more and more freedom. So I invite you to explore that as a first exploration this morning. How does that sit with you? How does it sit? When you allow, when you breathe in, this notion, this possibility that freedom is possible, living more freely, living with more ease, is possible in your very life, in this lifetime. So with that, I would like to um, give a... um, a little presentation of of what in Theravada the stages of enlightenment actually are. Um, Whether you have heard this before or it might be new to you. Actually, let me just uh, wonder, let me ask, uh, who who has heard or learned about the four stages of enlightenment in, in Buddhism, what drops off, what fetters drop off? Okay. Okay, great. Okay, so... This is new to most of you. Great. So, so um, in, Tar- in Theravada Buddhism, there are four stages uh, of progress, pro- four progressive stages of awakening that lead to full enlightenment. Um, and a fully enlightened being is called an arahat. We might have used the word here and there. Arahat is a fully enlightened being. But there are four stages before that. So the first stage is called the stream enterer. Actually, I'll give you the name for the four stages, and then I'll describe what um, what what are the fetters that are abandoned in each state. What drops off? So it's a gradual process. It's a gradual process. It's it's a way to live our lives. So the first one is a stream enterer. And the idea is that you have entered the stream. You've entered the stream of Dhamma and you start to really immerse yourself in it. You're just this idea of, ah, now you're in the stream, you're drinking from it, you're in it. Stream enterer, the um, Pali word is sotapana. Sotapana is the Pali word for stream enterer, the first stage of awakening, enlightenment. The uh, second, uh, and, and it's said that one who enters uh, the stream will uh, not be reborn in any lower realms, uh, in, in realms of woe and realms of suffering in, in future births. And they will have at most seven births until they realize full awakening. So becoming a stream enterer, having that level of realization and awakening and ease in our life is, is already a lot of ease. That's how I take it. It's already a lot of ease. One's already starting to 
to one's life is already starting to unfold in that direction. The second stage is called once returner. And that means, uh, the, the, the word once returner means that there's only one more lifetime. They're only going to come back, be re, uh, re, reborn one more time until they become fully awakened. And uh, the Pali uh, word for that is Saka, Sakadagami. Sakadagami. The next stage is once returner. I'm sorry, non-returner. So you're not returning anymore. This is your last last existence, non-returner. And the, the Pali word for that is anagami, anagami. And the last stage, the fourth stage of enlightenment, arahat, which actually is just arahant. It doesn't have a, a, a translator. It just becomes an arahant. That's a word in itself. So I'd like to briefly discuss what, what uh, happens at each stage, what what are the changes that happen in one in one's personality, in one's way of being, as this as described classically? So that since this is a study retreat, we're at least exposed to it. Since we're talking about the third noble truth of cessation and, and, and enlightenment and awakening, so there are a total of ten ten fetters, and in each stage, different ones drop off. They, they get resolved. So in the first stage of stream entry, uh, sotapanna, the, f- the f- three that drop off are identity view, doubt, and attachment to ritual. And let me explain what these mean. So the first one, identity view. So one who has, whose practice has um, reached that stage um, sees the nature of of no self. That sees that, that there is no identity view. That there is not attachment to this identity to the self as um, as a solid, solid self. So that sense of identity view that that um, that that drops away. Um, so one still functions in the world, of course, completely, but one doesn't take this, this being as a completely solid self. One, one realizes that this is a process. It's a process that really has come together from a lot of uh, things that function together. This body that functions pretty well, the neurology that functions pretty well, the, the, the thinking process, the food that you eat. It's just a lot of things that have come together, and there's no... Um, no core, no solid self in the center that's driving it all. Uh, there's no homunculus in the in the brain. There's no little person driving. Like okay, look through this side, look through there. There is not that. It's, this is just a process. It's a process. So that 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 drops away that sense of solidity. And again, one continues to function in the world perfectly well, but. You know, one doesn't take oneself so so seriously, or, or does, doesn't see that solidity of self. That's not to be mistaken with with mana, which is I am, um, or I will be a sense of self, which is a little different, and I'll describe that in in later because that doesn't fall off until you're an arahat. So you can st- you can know that um, you can um, in the first stage. Um, you can have an insight, a, a really embracing of um, of um, 
the lack of a solid self and still have, um, um, how should I put it, still having, um, still, um, um, how does it work? The, the, um, the, the way Joseph likes to put it is uh, the, the word mana, which is, which is translated as conceit and only drops off at the fourth level uh, of enlightenment, is um, I was, I am, I will be. So it's that constant propping up of one's being and comparing self and I'm less than, I'm more than. So that continues for a while, but what drops up in the first level is really an intimate uh, understanding of, of that this self is a process, even though it still continues to function in the world in, in ways of, of having um, the various things that we'll talk about. It'll become clear in a moment. If it doesn't, ask me, So as I go through it more. So the second thing that drops off is doubt. So, and that said, um, it said that um, one no longer has doubt in the teachings and in Buddha Sangha, Buddha Dharma and Sangha. So basically, one ha- no longer has doubt. One becomes, one has a sense of real confidence and trust in the teachings from one's own experience um, in that point in one's practice. The third thing that drops off is attachment to rituals. Um, and that is believing, falsely believing that if I do so-and-so, such a thing will happen. So having supernatural beliefs, for example. And this was particularly important um, in India at, at the time because there were a lot of supernatural beliefs that if you, for example, if you do dog practice, if you... Uh, pretend that you're a dog and go bark around, oh, that will clear your karma and then you become enlightened just if, if you bark around. So so um, it sounds, you know, kind of unbelievable for us, but apparently people did that. Um, so so uh, having having belief in rituals that doing things in the world will make you awakened. Will, um, um, and that, that doesn't have to do with practice, of course, because the practice brings out insight and changes it from within. But if I light 100 candles, that will burn off my karma, things like that. So, so belief in a ritual drops off in the first level. So in the second level, actually this is interesting, in the second level I find this very instructive. Sensual desire and ill will, so those two, number four and five, get weakened. They don't drop off. They only get eradicated and they drop off until the third stage, non-returner. So what does that say? It says that sensual desire and ill will are so strong that it takes a while for them to be completely eradicated. So it is said that when one reaches the second stage of, of uh, one's returner, um, sensual desire and ill will are attenuated. So the desire for sensual pleasures, uh, for the sense door pleasures, they'll still be there, but they won't be as strong. One enjoys them, but you know, you can take them or leave them. There's not as much craving for them. There's still craving because it doesn't quite drop off, but... Uh, it's less so. Similarly with ill will, it is said that um, um, people who have re- achieved that stage don't get 
angry that easily. Their anger is still there. They do get angry, but not as much. Not as much, which to me sounds such a relief to get to that stage, to just you know, not have anger and ill will and things that, that, that come up in our, in our human lives and, and, and our source of dukkha and suffering. So in the third stage, non-returner is actually uh, where number four and five, sensual desire and ill will completely get eradicated and get dropped off. Um, that there is no, those fetters don't exist. Um, so that also means that one doesn't seek or really take pleasure in sensual desire at that point either. Um, so it is said that people um, become celibate um, at that point because there's just no sensual desire at that point really. I haven't got there, so I can't tell you how that works, but it is said that that's how, how it happens. And then the rest of them, uh, the rest of the five, drop off at stage of arahanship. And here's the list. Uh, material rebirth lust. So one does not have any desire to be reborn again in the material realm. The Number seven is immaterial rebirth, lust. What does that mean? So, according to Buddhist cosmology, there are material realms where there is body and there is consciousness. Consciousness and body. So in this realm, we have body, there is materiality, there's materials, molecules, and there's consciousness. It's supposedly, again, according to cosmology, there are realms of existence. Oh, so so actually, let me just briefly say. And there, so so our human realm is kind of in the middle. Then there are lower realms. There are realms of woe, realms, um, difficult realms. The one right under us actually is is the the animal realm, which is not there's not that much suffering, but it's it, it's it's thought of as you know it's it's not really a place you can wake up because there's not not a lot of investigation faculty. It's kind of a placid, it's kind of a placid existence. But there are um, um, planes under that, for example, the plane of um, hungry ghosts, uh, which are apparently this being that have um, very, very slender necks and huge bellies. So, so they're always hungry, they're always craving. Um, always, and But they, their neck is so thin they can never be satisfied. So um, they they're always hungry, craving, and they can never be they, they can never eat enough to be satisfied. Um, and other lower realms. And just to say that one way to actually um, relate to this is not necessarily cosmology of these realms, but also think of it as as how we become we live these lower realms in this life, in our very life, in our human life. Um, when we become totally greedy, when we become really consumed by grief, and there isn't, we just want more and more and more, and there's not enough to cons- that can satisfy us, we're living in the realm of the hungry ghosts in that moment in our life. Or when we're completely checked out, um, we're living in the realm of the, a- the animal realm. We, we really don't have the... The, the, the presence of mind, the mindfulness, the presence, etc., etc. So th- that's another way that these could be interpreted with the one life model. So whatever works for you, um, don't, don't try to struggle with the multi life model or the realms. I just offer it so that you're exposed to it.
So in the same way, there are realms that are higher up uh, over the, the, the realms of, the, of human realms. And so there's the realm of the devas and devatas, so the heavenly realms, where there is only pleasure and no pain. Um, there are other realms where um, um, there is no materiality. There's no material. It's just consciousness. So it's disembodied consciousness. So that's what this is referring to. Um, the, the, so the desire to be reborn in those states, in those realms, also drops off. Because again, those realms are thought of as, as very blissful, existing in those realms. It's, it's thought of as very not having a body. I mean, imagine all the dukkha, uh, body dukkha we have in this life, not having a body. I would sign up for that. Uh, having Lyme disease, it's not you know nice not to have a body and not suffer. So being in a, in a realm where it's just consciousness and, and no, no materiality. So in the fourth stage, that that drops off to the desire to be to be in a state of complete bliss. So so that's also how we can translate that for us for, for ourselves that this desire to to be to be in complete bliss uh, state of complete bliss even that drops off. There's just so much equanimity in one's practice when one gets to that stage. It's all okay. There's just really not much clinging to anything at that point. Number eight. Uh, number eight dropping off is conceit or mana, which I referred to earlier as I was, I am, I will be. And that's a sense of constant planning, a constant um, sense of self, um, the self who wants to be right, the self who wants to, um, to be happy, the self who wants this, the self who wants to be better than others, less than others, that who wants to be... So that, that planning, that sense of self, that drops off. That's the, that's the conceit, that's the mana. Number nine has always interested me. Um, it's restlessness. So restlessness does not drop off until the very end. So if you have had any restlessness during this retreat, during your sits, welcome to the club. <laughs> It doesn't drop off until the fourth stage of enlightenment. <laughs> um, and the tenth one, which is really uproots everything else, um, and is, an, uh, is ignorance, avijja, ignorance. And really, as, as um, Temple was talking about it yesterday with the, with the swamp and the mosquitoes and malaria, ignorance, that's the swamp. That is the swamp that feeds everything that's ignorance and that is completely uprooted in the fourth stage so having said this again just exposing you to to this model um, whatever level of freedom we achieve in this life um, I think would for me would be more better than than what I have now, and 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 I can see in my practice I have more freedom before. Another thing I wanted to say is is not to to think of these as unreachable or impossible, um, especially the stream enter. I don't think it is unreasonable with diligent practice. Uh, it's unreasonable to expect uh, not not um, having that state of ease in our lives. Um, and there are practitioners in the East and practitioners in the West um, that, that I know of um, who are in that stage of, um, 
um, uh, of uh, a freedom of awakening. So, and I wanted to share that because I think in the Buddhist community, sometimes these stages of enlightenment are thought, "Oh my goodness, well, pff, forget it." There's, there's people don't even aspire to them. And again, aspiration is different from clinging and from driving yourself crazy. Want, want, want. That I don't want to have just introduced another thing for you to want today. Ooh, I want stream entry. Ooh, I want. No, it's just a sense of freedom. I mean, if you continue to practice, but ha- having the aspiration that it is possible, it is possible, I think gives one's practice direction. And it gives comments like, it is possible. Trusting in that possibility, it is possible. People in the East and West today have that level of freedom. It is possible. So, this is from, let's see, where is the Majima? I tried to write down where it is from. It didn't get copied. Okay, well, it's from Majima Nikaya. I think it's number two. It's number two. Yes, Majima Nikaya number two. So, what now, O Bhikkhus, is the truth of the cessation of suffering? It is the cessation of craving without a trace of it left behind. The abandonment of it, the renunciation of it, the liberation from it, the detachment from it. Oh, monks, this is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. I like to repeat that because the Buddha here is using different words, many different words, which bring up different, um, conjure up different feelings in relationship to this freedom and letting go and and, and the the ending of suffering. He uses the words cessation. Try that on for size. Cessation, something stopping. Abandonment. Try that on for size. Abandoning. Abandoning. To me, that word has a sense when you realize something is just not useful, is just not helpful anymore, and you just decide to abandon it. Abandoning. Renunciation. Renunciation. Again, it's a feeling of renouncing, renouncing, giving up, giving up, letting go. Liberation, liberation. This one has a sense of freedom, opening to it, to really let something go up into opening, spaciousness, clarity. Detachment, not being hooked on to something anymore, not being connected to it. So what is what becomes clear from contemplating these different words that the Buddha is using here is none of them suggest a suppression or forcible control. It's not 
you can't seize, you can't stop suffering by forcing it out. Like, I don't want it, I don't want it. Go away, go away. None of the words imply that. The words imply letting go, abandoning. There's, there is an opening up instead of force of will. Again, I really want to emphasize that. That liberation does not happen by the force of will. I want to be free. It doesn't happen that way. It's not a force of will. Right effort in practice, yes. But it happens when you actually let go. When you really let go. When you let go of craving. When you let go. Letting go is the path to cessation of dukkha. Ajahn Chah says, do everything with a mind that lets go. Do not expect any praise or reward. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will know peace, you will know complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. That's beautiful. If you let go completely, you will know complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. What I really appreciate about the teaching of letting go is really we have been working with it over the past few days. When we recognized, when we, from the very first night, I believe, when we were embracing, when we were allowing, when we were letting, for example, the body dukkha to be, when we were exploring that exploration of pain, we were letting go of the desire for it to be any different. We were working with letting go. And that was allowing the spaciousness, this ease in the body. So we've been working with it here and there. Or yesterday, as we were recognizing the, the feeling tone and then how it leads to that craving and then softening around it sometimes, softening and letting go. It's that letting go. So today we'll really work with the letting go more and more and see how that really brings a sense of ease. And it's wise letting go. We'll explore our relationship to what letting go actually means and what is wise letting go. I want to uh, share with you a, uh, an example, actually, for, from my own life that actually just came up um, yesterday. Um, I was talking with my partner on the phone, and, um, and next weekend we are going to a wedding. We're invited to a wedding that afternoon. So we had it all planned. And he told me on the phone that, oh, so, so he recently has become very excited about doing um, triathlons and r- long running things, and, and he did one a couple of weeks ago. So he had found one 
a, a, a swim from Alcatraz, mm-hmm. uh, which is, a, I think, a mile and a half or something swim, and he's never done it, and he's, now he's in good swimming shape. He was really excited, and it's, it happens on the morning of the wedding that we're going to. Uh, and so he was all excited about it and, and wanted to do it. And I realized what came up for me was, well, I wanted him to be awake because the last time he did triathlon, he slept all afternoon. So, <laughs> so I want him to be awake so that we can go to this wedding of a friend of mine. I don't want him to be all asleep. I, 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 I was attached to this idea of being perky and awake. So I told him, well, I was concerned and I really wanted him to be awake. And, and, and then we start to talk about something else. And then I was sitting with it during the phone call, really recognizing I was really clinging to this idea of, of him being awake. And I wanted him a certain way because of me, for me. Well, he's excited about doing this swim from Alcatraz that he's never done and he may never be able to do because the, the waters are, are so warm now, the warmest they've been in 20 years um, in, in the Bay, in San Francisco Bay. So I realized, whoa, I'm clinging. And I thought, what if I just let go? What if I let go of the desire for him to be awake? What if he's not? And he's just kind of like a little sleepy, but, you know, it's going to be okay. So I told him, you know, I can let go of my desire for you to be really awake at the wedding. And, and I completely support you wanting to do this, this, this swim. And I felt so much more free because during those few minutes when my mind was going through, like, oh, he's going to be sleepy, but he wants to do it. I want him to do it, but I don't want him to be sleepy. It's like, oh, I was free. I was really free. And it's going to work out. And if, if he's sleepy, big deal, you know, it will work out. But it was just this really exploring the, the second, uh, the first, second, and third noble truth in one, one, actually the fourth one too, because I brought mindfulness to it, right? I, I, I saw what was happening in the process. So there's the four noble truths right there in a the phone call. Um, so, so letting go, letting go really creates a lot of freedom for ourselves and for people around us too, when we're not fixed to the idea of what we want necessarily, an ideal um, that, that we want to happen. So, um, so the, uh, the epitome of non-clinging is uh, equanimity. And according to Upandita, it's different from, it is not the same as insensitivity, indifference, or apathy. It is simply non-preferential. One does not push aside the things one dislikes or grasp at the things one prefers. So this idea of equanimity comes in together with the idea of freedom and letting go. Equanimity supports the idea of letting go, being okay, that idea of non-preferential. As I decided to be, as wisdom kicked in yesterday, and I was non-preferential, okay, we can be sleepy, okay, it's okay. Um, So equanimity and cultivating that really supports the ability for 
for letting go to happen. Upandita goes on to say, the way to bring about equanimity is wise attention. To be continually mindful from moment to moment, without a break, based on the intention to develop equanimity. In the deepest forms of insight, we see that things change so quickly that we can't hold on to anything. And eventually, the mind lets go of clinging. Letting go brings equanimity. The greater the letting go, the deeper the equanimity. Freedom comes when we begin to let go of our reactive tendencies. And the last sentence, in Buddhist practice, we work to expand the range of life experiences in which we are free. I really like that. In Buddhist practice, we work to expand the range of life experiences in which we are free. So I want to highlight how um, letting go supports equanimity, equanimity supports letting go, and also they're supported by seeing change, seeing things arise and pass away, as he beautifully highlights in this, in this um, teaching. So we see that things change so quickly that we cannot hold on to any, anything, and eventually the mind lets go of clinging. That can actually happen, and that's something that, that, that we've been leading you in Temple, did a beautiful meditation of seeing arising and passing, the, the impermanent nature of everything. So that is also a pointer to letting go, because when you really see and appreciate that everything passes, everything comes and goes, the mind softens its grasp. Again, it's not done. You, you can't make it happen. You can't say, well, everything arises and passes away. I have to let go. I have to let go because it's not going to last. Not that. You don't force it. You just see it. You just keep seeing it. You just keep seeing it with an open, spacious attitude until the mind gets it itself. Oh, it's all coming and going. There's no point for me to grasp. There's no point for me. It's easier to let go. So it happens that way, not by the force of will. You don't make it happen. You just put the conditions in place. And the conditions that you put in place are mindfulness with the intention to see, to see arising and passing away. Mindfulness, moment to moment, in order to see, to, in order to develop a calm mind which is equanimous, that has the capacity to see and let go. So mindfulness becomes really central. And of course, we'll talk more about the other factors, uh, the, the path factors, the eight path factors. But basically, when the mind sees the arising and passing away, it has ease. And here, again, we're talking about gradual freedom. We're not talking about, oh, let the mind lets go of everything. No, it just goes a little bit. There are four stages to enlightenment. And there are many sub-steps. There are many, many stages within our lives that we take. So, again, don't expect that it will be sudden. You'll just see arising and passing away, and you let go of everything and all problems solved. No, it's a lifetime's work. A little more freedom over time. I won't even say a little more freedom every day because that's not how it works either. 
Sometimes there might be some weeks that you feel much more tight and some weeks you feel more free. But over time, as you look over months, you see how your practice has, has uh, changed. It's like stock market. You don't evaluate it on a daily basis. If you do, you're in for a t- tough, tough ride. Um, you, you look at it over time. You look at it over time, how it's changing. The same with your practice. Don't evaluate it moment to moment or day to day. Evaluate it over a long time and see if there is more freedom. As long as there is more freedom, a little more freedom in more areas of life. So, so letting go, equanimity, seeing arising and passing away. So with that, I would like to lead us into a um, guided meditation so that we explore some of these um, together. Are there any questions, anything that's not clear from what we've discussed this morning? Just so that there's some more clarity before we try it on for size. Or is it clear enough that we can... Any questions, burning questions? Yeah. There's one quick question. Yeah. Against the screen, that, that phrase, how does that play into the... you ever heard those phrase, against the screen? I have. I have. Um, and I think the stream bit is the stream, is entering the stream. And the against part, I, do, do you know, Temple? Do you know more about how what the metaphor there is? I'm not quite sure. There are two streams. The conventional stream we're all being swept along in. And so as we wake up, we feel like we're moving against the conventional stream. And there's a point where we enter the waking stream, and we're carried along by the waking stream. So it's the beautiful thing about becoming a stream entrant, is that the current carries you forward at that point, and everything you do is about being in the stream towards awakening. So the first stream we have to get out of is the conventional stream, which is tumbling us forward, increasing our sense that clinging is security, craving gets us what we want. So that's the cultural stream, that's the common stream. So the, the phrase against the stream, you're against the conventional stream. And then the turning point is when you feel like you've dropped into the waking stream. Any other clarifying question from what we've discussed this morning before we move on to the meditation? Okay, so with that, let's get into our meditation posture, finding ease and comfort in the body, settling, relaxing, softening. (sighs) Letting go of all the thinking and cogitation that probably happened just now with listening, just letting go of all of that and coming to this body. (sighs) Settling with each out-breath, settling a little more. Maybe the first few out-breaths could be actually deep and audible. 
just to settle. It's okay. Socially acceptable to make a sound this morning, the out breath. <sighs> yeah. <sighs> Inviting the body to settle, soften, relax. while the mind remains alert, awake and curious. Inviting a sense of ease Ease in the body, ease in the mind. Nowhere to go, nothing to do right now. Than to just be right here, right now, in this body. Just being present. Just allowing to mind to settle. Whether it's with the sensations of the body, soft and open and spacious. Or perhaps with the sensations of the breath within the body. Moving with ease in and out. Or perhaps finding ease, resting in the sounds, the openness, the sound in the room, feeling of expansion and openness. Whatever works for you this morning, 
inviting spaciousness and ease. I invite you now in this space of ease to open up to hearing specifically. Simply receiving sounds, not going out to look for them just simply receiving. And noticing how sounds come and go. You can rest with ease and allow the sounds to come and go and simply noticing them simply receiving them at the mind, at the ear door. They come and go without a trace. They're rising and passing. sound of the bird outside, sound of coughing in the hall, sound of my voice. the sound of the bell, which I will ring now, just noticing it coming and going.
just listening, relaxing, softening, being spacious, listening to sounds come and go. Don't need to do anything. Nothing to do, nothing to hang on to. So you stay in the present moment. Experiences arise and pass away. That's just what they do. It's their nature to come and go. It's just their nature. Nothing to hang on to. No point to try to hang on to. It's more spacious to be receptive. To let go. To not cling. To the arising and passing nature of experience. I invite you, if you like, to explore the coming going of breath. If you like, if that's comfortable for you. Noticing the spaciousness and ease. And even the pleasant nature, perhaps, of the breath. coming and going like the waves of the ocean. Experiencing the ease and spaciousness. Simply receiving the sensations of the breath coming and going. Each breath naturally arising and passing away. and to hang on to any of this experience. No need 
cling. Simply being, allowing the coming and going and noticing the ease in the mind and the body. When there is no movement of craving or clinging, for things to be different. Now for the last part of this guided meditation, I invite you to reflect and bring to mind something in your life that you really want to be different. Perhaps not choose the biggest thing, but something right here, right now, that's a lie for you, kind of a medium-sized thing. That you wish were otherwise. There's a sense of clinging, energy. You wish it were different. I invite you to bring it to mind and really get in touch with that wanting, with a sense of unease, with a sense of unease in the body and in the mind, the sense of friction, of wanting this thing to be different than it currently is. Feeling the unease and friction. And feeling into the desire, the wanting, the craving, you feel you're in touch with both the friction, the unease in the mind and in the body around this issue, as well as the wanting underneath.
Now I invite you to try, just for now, just for the next few minutes, try letting go, letting go of wanting things to be in a particular way. Again, after the sit, you can want them to be whichever way you want. But right now, just experiment. What does it feel like if you just let go for a few minutes? What would it take to soften around this? To feel space around this issue? And simply letting go, opening, softening, abandoning the desire, the need for things to be a particular way. What does it feel when you let go, when you relinquish this desire just for now, just right now? How does it feel in your mind? How does it feel in the body? What did you have to say to yourself or do in your mind to allow the letting go to happen? Take note of that. invite you to take a piece of paper, I think we have some paper up here if you need it, and pen, and reflect for five minutes or so.
on what that was like, what you observed, what happened for you, what didn't happen for you. We'll make it seven minutes so that we take a break, a short break, right on the hour. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.